Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. This is episode number 26 in our series for 2019. And today's date is Friday, July the 26th. First, I talked to Philip Morris, Australia Managing Director, Tammy Chan, looking at how the company has closed the pay gap between male and female employees and embraced gender equality. It's a model for other businesses. And then I'll talk to Indeed economist Callum Pickering, looking at Australia's latest job market figures. They're not good, and he says they'll get worse. But first, let's talk to Tammy Chan. Well... Tammy Chan, congratulations on achieving equal salary certification. Thank you so much. Uh, how did you do it? How did we do it? I think I would start off by saying we obviously didn't do everything we're trying or continue to do for this award. Um, and it started already quite some time ago for quite obvious reason. I mean, because of the nature of the industry, we are in tobacco. 
And that's why, I mean, has always been very male dominated. And therefore, we became aware of the issues that if we don't do anything on a sustainable basis to attract and retain, particularly women, we will have a big problem. And I think this kind of, you know, foresightedness to, to become aware of the issue early on help us a lot by putting a lot of small acts together. Uh, everything has to be relevant to our employee. It's not one size fits all. And all these years, our learning experience have got us here. So, I mean, uh, what proportion of your workforce is female? Uh, we have 44% of the female uh, and um, across the organisation, uh, which is, I think, quite balanced. Uh, and that surprised many um, people as well. You know, tobacco company will have almost half of the people uh, working for us as women. Well, that, that's that's quite extraordinary. Now, but how did you go about uh, addressing this uh, gender pay issue? I mean, what, what steps did you actually take? I think um, uh, fundamental number one is look at the details. Uh, and we have actually very well established systems. Say, for example, when we arrange a pay increase, I don't even get to see the gender of the individual I'm looking at. It's all about their performance. Um, I don't even pay attention to their last name. Really, it doesn't matter where they come from. Just look at the, uh, their uh, performance uh, and then history and the potential, and that's how we determine the pay. Same for our hiring. So, uh, in fact, I mean, if we offer the position, same grade, same job, we pay the same. So we never question or even post in the ad whatever they said, male or female. In fact, on the contrary, we are paying more attention to make sure we are hiring 50-50, you know, for the new position. Do we actually um, interview enough female to make sure that we don't actually discriminate one way or the other? Do Do you actually go and seek out female Likely female candidates? First of all, we all our ad or whatnot is gender neutral. However, we actually, as a manager, particularly in certain functions where we are underrepresented uh, by male women, uh, we will look at, you know, have we actually looked at all the available CV, all the available candidates to see whether we have sourced enough women for interview. The rest is still strictly meritocracy, uh, but we do want to make sure we allow enough opportunity for the potential women candidates to have the interview. Now, which which areas are women um, better equipped at a job than men? I don't know. I wouldn't say actually um, that there is a particular function, but in our case, uh, we have certain functions that are more represented by women. Say, for example, people in culture, uh, uh, we have more women than, than the average um, and in the case of say, for example external affairs we have a little bit more men than women so that's why individual function individual uh, hiring uh, is important rather than to look at the average number right okay okay so I mean when, when you started was there a big pay gap I mean it's, a, it's about 14 percent it's the usual statistics for the pay gap between male and female. Was it, was it about that level? Well, to be honest, I don't know the number because we started quite some early on and back then we really didn't look at this um, on a statistical or on a systematic basis. Um, and uh, what we've learned, um, I think um, a couple of years ago, when we really started to look at the number, 
Our gap was never 14, I think that's the number in Australia, um, but I cannot quote a specific number as far as Philip Morris International is concerned. And I just joined here like a year and a half ago, but when I got here, actually the pay um, or the gap already is like what we are seeing today. Right, so, so it was already closing, yes. as, as a matter of fact. Yeah, yeah. So, so it was simply a case of... Uh, just not looking at the gender of people you give pay rises to. Yeah, this sounds easy, right? But <laughs> it, it sounds very easy. It sounds very easy, but I guess when we talk about the core of the issues, it would take a lot of assumption, you know, between what men can do, what women can do, and as a result, what we should pay them. And by ignoring them, actually just look at the performance of that individual regardless of gender, I think that's, um, that's the key. Well, it's, it's quite extraordinary if it's so easy. Why aren't other companies doing this? I think, as I said, maybe there are certain biases or there are certain assumptions that may have to get challenged. Is that really by you know um, uh, looking at the gender, we can actually quantify certain difference, right? Um, but I, I, of course, I cannot speak on behalf of the other companies. But what I do want to say is really warrant attention of the management. And I think the more company can do that and challenge a lot of this maybe bias or unbiased assumption, I think will go a long way. Now you are on the way to achieving forty percent female management. I think you're at thirty-five percent now at the international level. That's quite extraordinary. Yes, indeed, and yeah, actually thirty-five is not so bad. But we wanted to set the band higher as well. We are encountering some challenge. Therefore, more concerted effort is important. All the way from hiring, pay is one thing. Um, but also retention. How are we actually retaining the people, right, once we hire them? Pay is just one part. How can we motivate them to make sure that despite the different life stages, women will stay with us by the same token, men as well, as they, as they go through different life challenges? So retention is a big issue on this. Yes, yes. And I think retention is actually a very, very important part that uh, requires more attention. Um, because retention... Um, that works for a certain group of women or men actually may not work in, for the other group as well. So it's all these little details what matters the most. We always say flexibility just to say something, but flexibility actually means something very different between different groups, between mother, between someone who seek education, um, but everyone's motivation is different. I think it's just by looking at the individual motivator and what works for them during that particular period of time is much better or much more effective than a general rule of thumb. So you have to look at each and every of your talent yes. Yes. employees. Yes, and I think this we are doing quite well. That takes a lot of effort and a lot of work, doesn't yeah, it? indeed, but it's part of the manager job as well. If we cannot retain the good people, I think it means that the results cannot be achieved as well. And what we learn is actually to hire good people who take even more efforts than to retain them. So I think it's a very good investment of managers' time to do so. Right, okay, okay. So, I mean, how did you go about um, developing your people? Do you, uh, do you do courses? Do you do training? Do yes. you do all of that? Do you offer that? Yeah, um, and yes, we do. Um, but actually, the way we are offering that is changing as well. We are a very global company, so um, what we have been actually doing well is basically courses and put people in challenging assignment in different countries as well. This we'll keep on doing, but I think in today's world, a lot more is online learning. Very recently, we actually offer all our employee um, um, online, actually remote um, MBA class offered by a university in, uh, in the US as well, and everyone can sign up. Um, and that really touch upon a lot of the um, competency that we require in terms of leadership. 
So we are using the more conventional way, moving people, and also the new way of delivering um, training, including online, including self-learning as well. So we are making improvement. And I think the most important um, thing is for employees to understand that if they wanted to learn, is the growth mindset, there is always a way, and you, can, you have to find time in order to progress as well. Indeed, indeed. And did you have to do an audit or anything of that, of what you what you required? On the training? On the well, training? Yeah, we have actually a lot of survey. Um, and when we design the program, we also take the feedback, whether the way of delivery is good or it's actually achieved the objective. Um, so, I mean, this feedback mechanism is working quite well in terms of getting the feedback, whether the training suits them. And of course, day-to-day work, we actually see the progress of the employee, whether they're applying it or not. Because when we send people on training, we actually make the manager aware of the training objective as well. And, and I think it's important for the manager to keep an eye on you know, the applicability on whether or not the individual is accepting or applying it. Well, that, that would mean that you would constantly have to be monitoring the situation, wouldn't you, for all the employees to ensure that you do get to that 40% level? Our, our objective would be all. I mean, but um, obviously we, we cannot do that sometimes. And um, however, we actually keep track of a bit the assessment on the potential of, uh, um, uh, potential of the employee, and we just try to apply that accordingly as well. So, say for example, certain employee are doing a little bit more transactional, maybe that needs is a, is a little bit less. But for the people that we see the potential, uh, the effort will also be uh, different. And uh, and so, what are the big challenges in doing that? The challenges I think I alluded to is. Um, is, is to look at individual and I think when we come to human being, when we come to employee, we talk about different generation have different motivation, we talk about different gender have different motivation and I think um, one thing that we have been actually keep on reminding ourselves is don't only look at the history, look at what's the trend and really look at what matters and what the employee are telling us rather than this is the training, go and take it and our job is done. So it's this individual attention to the to the development. So you've got to constantly, and you've constantly got to be on top of that. Yeah, and this is actually a very big part of my job. Right. Well, Tammy Chan, it's been delightful talking to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for your time. And now let's talk to Indeed economist Callum Pickering. Callum Pickering, the latest unemployment figures of five point two percent. No one was expecting it to be that bad. means Australia's unemployment rate is still stuck at that rate. What's your assessment of it? Yeah, overall the um, the jobs report was a little bit of a mixed bag. Um, overall probably a little bit on the negative side. There were a few um, positives um, in there as well. Um, with the unemployment rate of 5.2%, that's obviously quite high compared with where it was six months ago when it actually dipped below 5%. It's heading in the wrong direction um, and certainly it appears as though it may even... Um, increase a little bit uh, further over the remainder of the year. Um, one of the, the really weak numbers was the employment figures, just 500 jobs uh, created in the month. Uh, I guess it could have been worse, could have been negative, but um, 500 jobs is certainly much weaker than we've uh, seen over the past um, couple of years. Now, I think we do need to put that number into a little bit of context. Um, March through to, to May was quite strong for employment growth. There was about 107,000 jobs um, created over those three months. So if you look at it as sort of a four-month block, it doesn't look that bad. But in isolation, it's obviously not a, a great um, number. Um, in terms of um, one of the, the more positive things, though, was that the participation rate increased to 66%, which is 
um, a new record high. So the Australian economy is becoming a little bit more inclusive, more people are entering the workforce and getting involved, and that's always a good thing. However, the fundamental issue is the number of job seekers versus the number of vacancies, and there are more job seekers than vacancies at the moment. That's absolutely right. Um, one of the issues we do have right now is that there is uh, 2.9 unemployed people per job vacancy. Um, and if you include the underemployed, that jumps up to 7.6. Now, um, that maths isn't great if you're a job seeker and you're looking to, certainly if you're looking to enter the workforce. Um, so it do, does indicate that it's a, a real struggle for those out there who don't have jobs or do, don't have the type of jobs they want um, because there just isn't enough um, opportunities out there. Which would indicate that job seekers are taking longer to find work. Um, it can do, absolutely. Um, and it means that if you do find yourself unemployed, um, then it can be a real struggle to get back in the, the labour market as well. All of this coincides, of course, with the debate over New Start, which hasn't been increased for 25 years. And uh, the figures show that the greatest demographic group on New Start are the over 55s who have been forced out of work and are unlikely to find work very time, anytime soon. Yeah, that's right. Um, when we think of New Start, we often think about young people, and they certainly um, there are certainly a lot of young people on New Start. Um, but it is that over 55 group that find themselves on New Start and really face an uphill challenge to, to get back in the labour market. Um, whenever you look at um, labour mobility statistics, it's much easier for young people to get back in the job market than it is for old people. Uh, older people. So if you are over the age of 55 and you do find yourself unemployed, that could, in some cases, be the last job you have. And so you're on new start until you sort of enter that um, retirement phase and you can have access to your superannuation and the pension and things of that nature. Um, so it can be a real challenge. because Yeah, well, there's, there's been various calls. Uh, there's calls from Labor, calls from the Greens. I think the Greens are introducing legislation this week to increase new start. Uh, there's calls from business. Even Barnaby Joyce and John Howard have come out in favour of increasing New Start. But the government seems to be committed to maintaining its surplus. Yeah, that's right. They're putting the surplus ahead of, I guess, the, the financial needs of um, well over a million Australians. Um, the New Start allowance simply isn't sufficient to keep its recipients out of poverty today. Um, if you look back over its history, 20 years ago, it was about 45% of the median income. Today, it's about 31%. Um, so it's falling behind. It continues to fall behind year after year because it's only indexed to the CPI. And wages tend to increase by more than the CPI per year. Um, so it's becoming increasingly uh, an increasingly poor way of keeping its recipients out of poverty and keeping their heads above water. This, this is very interesting because the seniors seem to have become quite a powerful lobbying force, uh, having secured uh, changes to the deeming rates, for whatever that might be worth. Do you expect they'll be lobbying the government on this? I hope so. I hope so. I think, you know, in my mind, it's quite clear that the new state allowance needs to be higher than it currently is. We need a better safety net in this country for those who are most vulnerable. And the baby boomers and the, the Gen Xs, they are a powerful lobbying group. They do seem to be able to get things done when they, they push government. So I do hope that we do see a lot of these over 55s pushing for a high new start allowance because that really needs to get some traction um, across the, 
across politics. And it's said that if you increase a new start allowance, it would actually boost the economy because there'd be more spending. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, so new start recipients tend to spend every cent they get because they, I mean, obviously they don't have much to begin with. Um, so if you increase the new start allowance by $75 per person, then almost all of that's going to be recycled back into the economy, whether it be through um, restaurants or retail or, or you know, any area of the economy. So it would directly boost the economy. Right, okay, okay. Now, uh, the RBA would be keeping a very sharp eye on these unemployment figures. Where do you think this is going to leave the RBA? Well, I don't think they'd necessarily be surprised by this outcome. So the unemployment rate staying at 5.2%, that's pretty much what they would um, expect. I think they might um, decide not to focus too much on um, only 500 jobs being created because there was that strength in the, the three um, previous months. Um, so I, I don't think it necessarily changes anything from their economic um, outlook. I do, however, believe that they are likely to cut rates again before the end of the year. I think November is probably the most likely month because it does coincide with an update to their economic um, forecasts. Certainly the market expects that to be the case and they're also um, pricing you know, a 50% chance of a second rate cut next year as well. So that would take the rates down to 0.75% if there's another rate cut next year? Um, absolutely. And certainly if the market has their way, um, it might even get down to, to half a percent. That is quite alarming. Absolutely. I mean, who would have thought a couple of years ago that we'd be in this situation? Um, and certainly with inflation so low and there being a range of economic issues that we are facing, it does appear likely that rates will remain um, sort of at this level for probably a, another couple of years at the very least. These, this uh, unemployment figures... Uh, suggests that wages growth will remain stuck at about 2%, 2.3% for some time. Yeah, I mean, basically every forecast that was assuming that wage growth would increase um, was doing so on the back that the unemployment rate was declining, um, that unemployment rate was going down, that the underutilisation rate was going down as well. That's now no longer the case. Um, the unemployment rates pushed up over the past six months, the underutilisation rate remains elevated. Neither of those point towards improving wage growth. Um, so we're at 2.3% right now. It's quite possible over the next 6 to 12 months that wage growth could actually get a little bit weaker, push down to a 22 or a 2.1%. Um, so we're certainly not heading in the right direction there. Uh, you would need an unemployment figure to be have a 4 or a 3 in front of us, surely, for there to be an impact on wages. Well, that's certainly the global experience. Um, the US struggled to generate much, in, uh, much wage inflation until they got down to around 4%. Same was true of um, uh, the United Kingdom. So, and I mean, we've, we got down to just below 5%. We could barely generate much uh, improvement in wages at all. So you would think that something close to a 4 would be needed for wage growth to push towards that 3% level. Right, but uh, so, and the other worrying part, of course, as we've discussed before, is the growth markets are Melbourne and Sydney. Yeah, one of the concerns I've had for some time now has been how uh, concentrated um, employment growth has been in Australia. So it is primarily Sydney and Melbourne. Um, they have a much stronger labour market compared with the rest of the country. Um, the unemployment rate um, in Sydney and Melbourne is down sort of around 4.5%. 
uh, you compare that to around six or even a little bit above um, for the rest of Australia. So we do have a bit of a two-speed labour market right now, and I think that if conditions were to uh, soften in Sydney and Melbourne, then it would be difficult for the other states to fill that gap. So if uh, conditions were to soften here because of the property market, that would have an impact? Absolutely. I think that the property market is, is one potential area where um, Sydney and Melbourne could certainly soften. Um, but it's just sort of the broader point. It can be any sort of trigger. But if Sydney and Melbourne soften, then the other states are just not in a great position to sort of absorb those losses. Well, that's, uh, that's quite alarming. And uh, we'll, we'll be uh, watching the next set of figures. What do, you, what do you forecast for the next set of figures? Uh, well, I, I think the labour market's probably likely to, to soften a little bit in the near term. I expect the unemployment rate to tick up towards 5.3, maybe even 5.4 by the end of the year. Well, we'll be watching that with fascination. Callum Pickering, thank you very much for your time. And thanks for having me. So what's happening in the news? Well, the global economy is in a precarious position and likely to slow, the International Monetary Fund has warned. Releasing its mid-year update to its World Economic Outlook, the IMF downgraded forecast growth for this year and next by 0.1 percentage points. At 3.2%, world gross domestic product growth is tipped to be its slowest since 2009, during the depths of a global financial crisis. And Amazon is hoping to build up its channel streaming business for launch in Australia in 2020. Amazon has been meeting with local content providers and broadcasters to scope out their interests for putting their content on Amazon channels. Amazon Channels is an additional product available on top of subscription video on demand service, Amazon Prime Video, which launched in Australia in 2016. It acts as a hub or aggregator for third-party channels and streaming services in a similar vein to Foxtel and Fetch, except it does not involve hardware such as a set-top box. In the US, Amazon has more than 100 channels, ranging from HBO, Showtime, CBS All Access, Major League Baseball, NBA League Pass, Comedy Central and Stars. The US viewing landscape is highly fragmented. For content providers, Amazon Channels is another avenue to market to tap into people who don't subscribe to traditional cable TV. For consumers who don't have cable or pay TV, Amazon Channels essentially acts as a new format of pay TV providers, but online only, and allows them to pick and choose their content. In the US, Amazon makes channels available to its Prime subscription customers for a fee. For example, the HBO channel is US $14.99 per month and Showtime is US $8.99 per month and gives those third-party providers an avenue to market leveraging Amazon's scale. However, in Australia, HBO and Showtime do not have direct-to-consumer streaming services like they do in America and they've signed exclusive deals with Foxtel and Stan, which is owned by Nine publishers of the Financial Review, The Age and Sydney Morning Herald. The deals also cover life of series, meaning Amazon would not have access to popular shows that began during the current deals as long as they continue to be made. And this coincides with the former chief executive of Foxtel warning the pay TV business will need to have a dramatic overhaul to stay competitive and shore up its earnings as Australians turn towards Netflix. Peter Tonner, who was Foxtel CEO for about two years until January 2018, when he was replaced by Patrick Delaney, says that the embattled business would not be able to spend as much on content, including sports, in future. Foxtel is set to make a swathe of changes next week, which is expected to include a rumoured partnership with Netflix 
and software updates to the IQ3 and IQ4 set-top television boxes. And the federal government has accused Labor of being trapped in a welfare mentality over its calls to increase New Start, a move Treasury has forecast will cost $12.4 billion over the four-year forward estimates and $39 billion over a decade. Facing growing calls to boost the unemployment payment by as much as $75 a week, the government has gone on the offensive, accusing Labor of putting welfare before aspiration. On Newstart, Labor has not nominated a dollar increase, just that it should be boosted following a review. The Greens and the welfare lobby are among those calling for a $75 a week. Others demanding an increase in Newstart, which had its last above inflation boost in 1994, include the Business Council of Australia, KPMG, the ACTU, Coalition Backbencher Barnaby Joyce, and National Seniors Australia. The Seniors Group has become engaged as a consequence of growing unemployment among older people of working age, some of whom, especially women, are destitute. There are 173,196 people aged over 55 on Newstart. The government is ideologically opposed to a real increase in Newstart, and it argues that most recipients of the payment, currently $277 a week, are on other welfare payments as well. It argues Newstart is designed to help find work and is not meant to be a living allowance, like the age pension. And it is also guarding its promise to return the budget to surplus in 2019-20. And low interest rates won't be enough for Australia to generate wage growth. The Reserve Bank and Morrison government have been warned, amid signs shoppers are continuing to tighten their belt. As Labor calls on the government to do more for those parts of Australia where the jobless rate is above 20%, exclusive analysis by Bernson Young suggests a key part of the RBA's plan to lift wages may fail without a major change in government policy. The bank has cut official interest rates twice since the start of June, with the stated aim of driving the unemployment rate down to at least 4.5%, which it believes will be low enough to put upward pressure on wages. But Ernst Young Chief Economist Joe Masters said there were now 462,000 more Australians looking for work than job vacancies, while underemployment, those people wanting more working hours, is 8.2%. Ms Masters pointed to the US, where the unemployment rate was at a 50-year low and there were one million more vacancies and people out of work, and yet wage growth was only now starting to lift. In New South Wales, there were 115,000 more people looking for work than available vacancies. In Victoria, 98,000, and in Queensland, 128,000. And top financial executives may soon have to wait seven years to claim all their bonuses as the banking insurance and superannuation regulator moves to align pay with long-term performance. APRA is proposing to cap the financial performance component of executive incentives to 50%. The proposals would allow boards to claw back remuneration for up to four years after it was issued if problems later arose. The executive pay guidelines follow scathing findings from the Banking and Financial Services Royal Commission. Responding to a key recommendation from the Financial Services Royal Commission, the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority concluded that existing remuneration practices were not incentivising the right behaviours in financial companies. The far-reaching proposals would see lucrative bonuses for top executives deferred for as long as seven years and give company boards the power to claw back incentives for up to four years after they were paid out in cases where poor performance or misconduct became apparent. The overhaul of executive pay would cover all APRA-related entities, including the Big Four Banks and AMP, which were heavily criticised in Kenneth Haynes' Royal Commission findings earlier this year, with a focus on senior executives at complex institutions. APRA Deputy Chair John Lonsdale said the Commission's findings played a key role in prompting the changes. And Carlton United Breweries 
the maker of seminal Australian brands like Victoria Bitter, Carlton Draft, Great Northern and Crown Lager, has been acquired by Japan's Asahi for $16 billion. With local beer sales slumping in recent years, the blockbuster takeover may help facilitate a revival of sales locally, industry advocates say. CUB's previous owner was a Brazilian beer behemoth, Anhuser Busch InBev. The deal will trigger review from Australia's competition watchdog, beginning with an assessment of Asahi's new combined market share. And the Foreign Investment Review Board will also take a close look at Japan, Japanese brewer Asahi's financing and tax mitigation practices in Australia before it approves the $16 billion acquisition of Carlton United Breweries. Judging by the capital structure of Asahi's Australian business, which makes Schweppes and Pepsi soft drinks, Spring Valley juices, Cool Ridge bottled water and Mountain Goat beer, the Japanese brewer is likely to look at tax-effective ways to maximise returns from its latest acquisition. According to Asahi Australia's accounts, the company earned $101.5 million before interest and tax on revenues of $1.8 billion in the year to December 30, 2018, but paid $84.8 million in finance costs, reducing its pre-tax profit to just $18.4 million. And at least $80 million of the finance costs was interest or dividends on $816.6 million in redeemable preference shares, which were issued on December 29th to repay an $816.6 million interest-free related pay-of-the-party loan from Asahi Group. And the chief executive of the world's largest mining company has endorsed drastic action to combat global warming, which he calls indisputable and an emerging crisis. The planet will survive. Many species may not. BHP Chief Executive Officer Andrew McKenzie told a business breakfast in London on Tuesday. This is a confronting conclusion, but as a vector and geologist once said, you can't argue with a rock. Mackenzie endorsed carbon pricing but said it was not enough to combat the looming threat of mass extinctions and major sea rises. He announced BHP was spending US $400 million, that's $570 million Australian, to create a climate investment program to reduce emissions from its own operations as well as those generated from its resources. And a judge has given Clive Palmer a dressing down for his absence during the Queensland Nickel trial saying other people who represented themselves in court could not afford to hire lawyers and still showed up every day. Despite Mr Palmer's personal wealth valued at $4 billion, Mr Palmer has chosen to represent himself in the trial, which is looking at the months leading up to the downfall of the Townsville refinery, which went into administration in January 2016. Clive Palmer has been missing in action during some days of trial. Mr Palmer sat at the bar table in the court for the first two days of the trial last week, but was then nowhere to be found after that. Mr Palmer says his work as a company director had stopped him from making it to court. Justice Mullen said usually company directors hired lawyers so they don't waste time. Liquidators are trying to claw back $200 million from Mr Palmer and his associates. The billionaire, who once listed litigation as his hobby in his Who's Who entry, has missed almost two days of a Supreme Court trial in Brisbane while acting as his own barrister against a liquidator's bid to claw back $200 million from him and his associates. Mr Palmer told the court on Monday he was torn between being a self-represented litigant and a busy company director. Justice Deborah Mullen shot back that most people in his position hire lawyers so they don't waste time in court. The businessman also told the court on Monday morning he planned to lodge an application to challenge the claim by a lawyer for liquidators Graham Gibson last week that Mr Palmer's mining tenements in the Galilee Basin were worthless. He released a statement on Friday describing liquidators as bloodsuckers and leeches in their liquidation of Queensland Nickel. 
and profit margins at Australian restaurants have nosedived since the arrival of delivery apps like Uber Eats and Deliveroo, with apps scooping up about 30% of food order totals just in commission. Margins have plunged from about 10% to between 2 and 4%, according to the Restaurant and Catering Industry Association. The group also claims Australia's urban and restaurant culture has inexorably shifted. More consumers are beginning to abandon eating in, forcing establishments to strip out seating and sack wait staff to survive. An online retailer, Kogan.com, returned to earnings growth in the June half, but growth in new customers, sales and commissions is slowing amid increased competition from Amazon, eBay, Catch Group and omnichannel retailers. Chief Executive Ruslan Kogan said that earnings before interest tax depreciation and amortisation had risen more than 25% in the six months ending June 30, after falling 5.7% in the previous half year, and more than doubling in 2018. Gross transaction values, which include sales and commissions from verticals such as Kogan Mobile, Kogan Internet, Kogan Insurance, and the new Kogan Marketplace, rose more than 9% in the June half. This compared with GTV growth of 12.9% in the December half and 47.3% growth in 2018. Growth in new customers has also slowed, with active customers rising 4.3% to 1.609 million in the June half and by just 1.3% in the June quarter, well below the 32.2% active customer growth in the first half of 2019 and 45.3% in 2018. And that's it for this week. And next week, I'll be talking to Jonathan Miller, Managing Director of BitTrade and BitTrade Labs. BitTrade is a digital platform for the everyday Australians to trade and manage their blockchain assets, including Bitcoin and Ether. BitTrade Labs, on the other hand, is an incubator for blockchain and distributed ledger projects. It is a mission of both companies to empower people with the tools and knowledge to trade blockchain assets. As the founding member of industry body Australian Digital Commerce Association, they are committed to the growth and mass adoption of blockchain and cryptocurrencies in Australia. And I'll be talking to Comsec economist Craig James about what's ahead in the market for the week. And of course, I'll be bringing you all the week's news. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingGiz, B-O-Z-Z, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a me comment. Have a great week. Take care. Be good. Looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quinn's is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. 
No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.